Welcome to Permaculture Tonight. Tonight is a very special guest, a friend of mine that I met at Permaculture Voices 2, PV2, Erica Wisner, or Wisner, as I believe it's actually, you're supposed to pronounce it, but everyone says Wisner, right? I just want to address the elephant in the room. Ernie and Erica Wisner is, I think, the way to pronounce it. They're the rocket mass heater experts in my circle. And I know that there's other experts out there because there's this innovators uh, event that they had at Paul Wheaton's, um, his whole his whole setup up there, and he he filmed it, and he did a Kickstarter around it. The people I know who are into rocket mass heaters and into rocket stoves, people leading that, in in my understanding and in my circles, is Erica and Ernie Wisner, and they're both incredible people. She has had an incredible teaching experience and she has amazing skills with making complex scientific ideas very understandable and hands-on. Ernie has traveled the world, has worked many, many jobs that are harder jobs than most people even comprehend. And he's done things in his life that give him a very unique perspective. So not only are they these innovators, they're these people pushing the limits of would-be to use, they are, in their own right, amazing people. So I love talking to Erica. We didn't get Ernie on this time, but I love talking to Erica. As you will see, we go on forever. Uh, we go for a full two hours in this this podcast tonight. And... I hope you stay for the whole time, and we kind of range. We talk about rocket mass heaters, the history of it, the past, present, and future. We talk about common sense. We talk about permaculture. We talk about social permaculture. We talk about a lot of things. And as always with Erica, it's just totally diverting, and we just keep going and going and going. So hop on, hop in, and let's get to it. Talking about about rocket mass heaters, um, that, that you're you're working on a new book. Mhm, mhm. It's the Rocket Mass Heater Builder's Guide, um, and we've got we actually got a contract with New Society to bring it out. So they're working like crazy on the final proofs and and uh, boy, there's a whole lot of steps in publishing a book. <laughs> Yes, there are, and I've heard good things from New Society. I think the Urban Farmer, which I have right here, yeah, the Urban Farmer, Curtis Stone's new book, that came out uh, through them too. Yeah, no, they do a bunch of stuff. They're actually starting a series of technical natural building books that are explicitly designed to give you everything you need to build rather than just be a coffee table book. Whoa. Um, they're, they're They're very serious about it. They also, I don't think I even asked them about it, like, one of the things that my self-publishing friends were saying was, well, you know, me and me and this other guy, we go in together so we can get runs of 100% recycled paper, and, you know, a conventional publisher won't do that. But I don't think we even asked, and, it, and it's going to be 100% post-consumer recycled paper because that's just how they do business. That's great. So, yeah, they're, they're pretty they, – they call themselves deep green, and I have not yet seen anything to contradict that, so. So we met at Permaculture Voices, and I really missed you guys this year. Um, yeah. I wish you guys were there, but 
but I'm glad I that we got like to have a follow up and talk. Yeah. Uh, how's James doing, by the way? Speaking James, of people we missed this year. Yeah, he he didn't he he wasn't able to go either this year, and so he held down the fort here and did all the the yard work and took care of the animals and the in the nursery. Uh, he's doing so good. He uh, he still wants to make a boat with Ernie. Um, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> so maybe that will happen someday. But we're still just trying to get the, get off the grid food wise. We're still building towards uh, getting our animal systems so that they're more mobile, so that we're lighter on the land. And we want to work on an outdoor kitchen this year as part of our because we want our nursery to be a social like community focus as well so we want to have events there and classes there and, and have an outdoor kitchen and I really I'm really interested in picking your brain about the future of rocket stoves rocket mass technology um, because these heaters I mean potentially they could revolutionize many industries not just heating our home and so um, I would love to talk to you about that, and then and then for for our listeners, because I know a lot of them, you know, have heard about it, but it feels like with most rocket mass heater conversations or even rocket stove conversations, we dive in in a something that's already midstream, right? Uh, it's right, because some people know what the word means. Right, and so I would love if you could give us a past, present, and future kind of overview of rocket rocket stoves and then rocket mass heaters okay well i i came in kind of in the middle um like i've this last 10 years or so has been my contribution to the field but i can tell you sort of from what people have told me what came before that um rocket stoves generally started out with a bunch of people like roughly in the 70s applying space age insights to basic wood burning combustion um it turns out that they rediscovered something that has been in use for thousands of years which is the idea of having the flames concentrated in a little sort of a chimney and not cooling your firebox by trying to take the heat right out of the fire but having a little bit of time for the fire to finish burning before you you know you put a top a pot on top of a little miniature chimney um ideally that chimney's insulated so it gets nice and hot and burns up all the fuel and then your pot's right above the flame which is which is kind of like that's what i learned in lab science like when you're using a bunsen burner you you operate right above the visible flame you don't necessarily stick things in it because when you interrupt the flame I mean, you can see this just by sticking a spoon over a candle. If you're actually in the flame, you get soot all over the spoon. And if you pick it up a little bit, then you don't. Right. Um, so that's, I mean, that's basically, that's that's a fundamental, is let's let the fire do its thing before we start tapping the energy that it's giving us. And there was a grand parting of ways in the development of rocket stoves, Um so we learned our rocket mass heater stuff from the Cobb Cottage School with Yanto Evan. And they work primarily with the J-shaped fireboxes where you drop the f fuel in vertically and it gives it a little longer flame path, but there's certain proportions you have to get right for it to work well. And then, um, and that is the power behind the rocket mass heaters as we normally build them. And then there was also the Aprovecho school that developed a lot of small portable or um, semi-permanent rocket cook stoves. They've done a little bit of larger sort of 
institutional size cook stoves, but they predominantly use just kind of a horizontal feed where you're slowly manually feeding sticks in sideways, um, which is which works great for people who are used to feeding sticks in sideways to it like a three rig hearth where they're basically cooking over an open fire. You know, the rocket stove is a big improvement over that, and they're used to that being part of how they control the heat. But for somebody who's used to, um, you know, North American cook stoves where you turn something on and then you're free to cook for a while without having to put your hands on it again, trying to feed wood in continuously to control your temperature is like a little bit of an extra task, especially if you have to crouch to do it. Um, so anyway, um, that's the biggest point of confusion that I see as people are just starting to learn about rocket stoves is we'll get people who've been looking at these lighter weight, short use cook stoves where, where they're made of metal with some kind of insulation between two layers of metal. Um, and then they'll try to use that kind of a firebox to push heat through a mass and the metal tends to burn out really fast. So it's important to, to notice that there's the rocket mass heaters are kind of more like a masonry heater where you need a pretty high temperature durable firebox because you're gonna be running it for you know, in the cold climates, probably four hours a night. Um, where with a cook stove, you might only run it for half an hour at a time if you're just going to boil some water and make some coffee. Right, and so it actually doesn't even qualify, right, as a traditional uh, wood stove. It's a firebox, right? Well, a traditional wood stove, again, in the, in the U.S., the legal definition for a wood-burning stove would be that it's under... 900 kilograms or that's like about 1900 pounds 1980 I think and so this that wouldn't that weight if you're building one of these with a masonry um, heat exchange mass and, and masonry around the firebox even just around the firebox you, you may be heavier than would qualify as a wood stove a wood stove is really a portable device uh, something that's manufactured in one place and then shipped to another place and installed there um, and so, you know, it's, it's just a completely different category. It's in some places they'll try to use the chimney codes for masonry heaters. Cause that's what they know that deals with masonry and fire. Um, but there is actually a separate building code for rocket mass heaters. Cause it doesn't make sense to ship masonry to a lab, test it, and then ship it back to somewhere else and expect to be able to install it. You know, occasionally people will do you know, side-by-side -side comparison tests with different models of masonry heaters, but it's almost always done in a manufacturer's lab rather than independent labs. Anyway, it's, it's just, there's a huge pile of different categories uh, legally in terms of the North American building codes, and this is something, even masonry heaters are fairly new to the North American building codes. There's been people that built them on homesteads coming over from the old country, but, you know, if you talk to experienced building inspectors, they still may or may not have ever seen one. Uh, whereas in a lot of Europe, uh, parts of the Middle East and China, it's masonry heaters have been around for a really long time and they know a lot more about them. Most people have seen them, many people have lived with them, and they come in all different sizes. I think one of the things that's going on in North America is we mostly have masonry heaters for a high-end market right now in terms of certified projects. And then people expect that that's the only thing they can be is these enormous structures. Well, 
turns out most people who can afford to hire a master mason have a really big house, and so they need a big heater if they want to heat the whole house with one heater. Um, but there's plenty of masons who are actively working on much smaller systems, like something more the size of a kitchen island, you know, where you can cook on it and store some heat. But if you've got a modest house, you only need a modest heater. Um, and that's like rocket mass heaters kind of came in from the alternative sort of counterculture movement as like, how can we do this with the minimum of ecological footprint, the minimum environmental impact, minimum cost. Uh, Yanto Evans is notorious for never buying anything if he can find it in a junk pile. Um, so they were originally built with all earthen masonry, recycled scrap parts. If he couldn't find old pieces of ducting to make the, the channels, he'd like build something out of cob or brick. If he needed to make an elbow, he'd just sort of make one in the masonry and not put pipe in there. Um, and so as a result, he can quote you astonishingly low prices for materials, which is basically two bags of perlite and the gas to go scrounge things. Um, and so it, we're, we're sort of, Ernie and I have sort of been bringing them into conventional buildings from that kind of very alternative cob cottage, um, you know, build your house right out of the dirt. I'm not, I don't feel like I'm explaining it in a very uh, concise way, <laughs> but it's a complicated field. No, it's really important that people understand the complexity because I think people are looking for a uniform like movement or the, people don't understand that this is an explosion of innovation. And whenever we have that, we have charlatans. We have people who are testing things who who are not realizing they're testing things. They think they, they figured it out. You know what I mean? We have we have yeah. dead ends. Yeah. Well, we have things that are dangerous. You know what I mean? They're, they're, yeah. It has everything. Yeah. Each model of masonry heater usually goes through years of testing to figure out what proportions make it work well because you have to balance the, the engine, the firebox, against and, and the exit chimney against the load of how much drag and how much heat extraction you've got going on. Um, and so I would say if you, one of the mistakes people make is they just try to swap features back and forth. Like, well, I like that. I like that bench, but I don't like the barrel. So I'm going to swap in this other firebox, but I still want the bench. And if your other firebox wasn't tested to run a bench, if it was originally tested to run a tower or a little kitchen island or something like that, you have no idea how long a bench it can run or even whether it can run that without making smoke. Uh, and that smoke could come out either end, depending on how your draft is working. Um, so it's, I would say for innovations, I expect if I'm trying a new shape, I expect to go through three to five iterations before I have something that's useful enough that I'd want to tell somebody what those dimensions were. And in some cases, you can go through 10 iterations or 100 and end up with something that still is just not really good enough to be worth trying to share it with people. Like it might be better to just stick with what was working before rather than continuing to, to pursue that particular idea. Right. Um, I mean, this is like so, the light so, yeah, bulb. For, this is like that? the light bulb. I, I, to me, I mean, the rocket mass <laughs> meter is like the light bulb. I mean, we're trying to, and it's also a situational light bulb. It's like, not just like, does it light? Where's the filament? It's like, where's the filament for this, this, 
biome or this house or this, you know, spatial requirement? Yeah. No, it's people most people in the modern context if you if you think of yourself as a consumer then you are looking for an object that you can buy that meets your needs in a particular way and you mostly think of those objects in terms of words and symbols um and you may not even have a really clear distinction when you get right down to it on what those words mean um like if i say heater and most people, their house heat is provided by a furnace in the basement. They're inclined to think that, well, you could swap this efficient heater for that furnace in the basement, and you could, you know, get rid of your utility bills and, and have the same kind of heat. Um, but one of the things that makes these, these heaters are, are kind of more of a big radiant heater or space heater. They work best in line of sight, but they really work best if you can actually sit or lie on the warm surface. Um, the, the physical comfort of, of sinking your butt down onto something warm and having that heat slowly move through your, your you know, your legs and back and, and the parts of you that tend to get cold the fastest. Um, you can't, you can't substitute that with anything that's in the basement that you don't look at. Um, and if you're actually heating people rather than space, you can actually... If you get it right, if you put it in a location where you get a little bit of passive solar gain and it's line of sight to the rooms in the house where you hang out the most and you've got a nice attractive surface that people tend to want to sit on when they walk into the room, even if they don't know it's warm, you know, like, like it's like the, the sort of the ergonomics of conversation groupings in the house um, so, that, so you actually have a nice place that your guests automatically sort of come in and sit down when they want to talk while you're cooking or whatever. If you if you get all of that right, then what you're able to do is you're actually able to create better comfort for people while dropping the temperature of the walls and ceiling on the outside of the house. So you're actually reducing the total amount of energy it takes to heat the house because you're reducing the amount of heat the house is losing. You've got a warm mass instead of trying to heat air that's going to go circulate up through the roof vents and out of the house and so on. Um, so it's, it's just, one of the really, the things that's really changed for me working with these heaters is how much of the world I see as like five dimensional processes, by which I mean like I'm looking at a brick, it's no longer something that's like a texture on SketchUp that I make a color on something. It's like like, that would be a two-dimensional brick, right? Would be just what you look at on the surface of the wall, and that's all you think about. Or for me, that brick is, it's a question of hardness, brittleness, strength, what temperature can it handle, uh, what happens to it as it hits that temperature, does it crack, does it melt, does it, in the case of a brick, it usually stays pretty strong and just starts to conduct that heat through and soak it up. Um, is it dense or insulating? Does it move that heat through, or does it stop the heat and reflect it back from the surface? Um, is it flat? Like, do I have a brick that's actually really perfectly flat and I can stack it and use gravity to hold my structure together? Or do I have a brick that, you know, was on the bottom rack of the kiln and has a bunch of little rack marks in it that I'm going to have to use mortar to put together, which weakens my structure? Um, and so it's like, there's, there's brick, there's insulation, um, there's the qualities of the dirt. In my area right now, we have a lot of silt and, and glacial till like rounded rocks, which is the worst possible combination of things for trying to build cob. 
which is made of clay and sand. <laughs> so it's like I'm, you know, I'm looking at the dirt and feeling it, and is it velvety or is it um, sticky or? Um, we found some non-Newtonian swamp mud at one of our workshops last year. I don't know if you've ever played with the starch slime and water thing. No. Um, two parts cornstarch, one part water. It makes a fluid that if you hit it, it feels solid, but if you, you can oh, pour I've it... Oh, I've done that. Totally. What, what does lime do, though? What does lime do to it? Um, it's... I just said slime. It was like... Oh, this, this, uh, this was, Okay, yeah, no, I play. love slime. Isn't that the only substance that does that? Uh, no. <laughs> um, there's actually... People use non-Newtonian chemical engineering for paints, like to go the opposite direction. So when you brush it, it's liquid, but as soon as you stop touching it, it gets more solid, so it won't run down the wall. Oh. Like, there's things they add to commercial paints to try to get them to do that, which is the opposite of what the starch slime does, where it's solid when you push on it, but not when you leave it loose. It turns out that, that the starch slime property, we used to call it oobleck, I think. There's a the yeah. curriculum thing out there where you can pretend it's from Mars and have the kids try to guess what's going on. Uh, yes, I know this. Um, and it usually involves green food coloring so that it's not obvious that it's like just cornstarch. But anyway, um, it turns out that that property of resisting when it's pushed on but relaxing and flowing when it's not pushed on is really, really hard to deal with as a mortar. You want the exact opposite for mortars where they're stiff and hold up the brick unless you tap on them and then they let the brick sink down a little bit to level it. So it's like, you know, you walk into a space and it turns out that dirt is made of everything in the world in a mixture of quantities. <laughs> it's like, you know, so you get into some place that's a swamp and they've had sort of a lot of organic silt and there's plenty of clay in this mixture. You can make, make a material that dries quite hard as sort of a clay-based concrete using this clay. But I think it took us an extra six hours to actually get it fully mixed up and hydrated and then to work with the stuff. Wow. Because it was just such a different and resistant material like like getting it like how do you get it to the right moisture content where it stops flowing when you're building with it but it's still soft enough to be plastic and and you can shape it and level things it's just like there is no right moisture content for this material you we you know fortunately we'd already planned on building that project with uh, masonry units on the outside instead of self-supporting earth and masonry because it was a, a greenhouse project that was going to be outdoors for a little while before they built the greenhouse and so we ended up just using very minimal mortar on the masonry units. We used almost no mortar and made it so that they, the mortar could, like, you know, flow out without destabilizing the structure. And then we just made a really wet mix and poured it in. <laughs> you know, put a, showed, like, let rocks fall into it <laughs> and kept pouring it. People would, like, like, find the right rhythm to jiggle it so that it would flow faster. <laughs> It was crazy. And it's just like, so the whole world is full of these um, these processes of, of things changing from one state to another gradually. You know, it might be granite breaking down really slowly. It might be, um, you know, horse manure breaking down really quickly. Um, it might be uh, a question of how do you locate things so that your fire doesn't cause any part of your building to break down by heat. You know, how do you get those safety clearances and what, what temperatures do you test for to make sure something's going to be safe, not just while you're there watching it, but, you know, if the heat's soaking into the masonry over several hours after the fire is out, 
you got to kind of keep an eye on your prototype and make sure that the surfaces don't reach a higher temperature after your test. Um, so anyway, it's a, it's a really, really fun way for somebody who likes to play with brain candy anyway, to interact <laughs> with the world. <laughs> but yeah, it's people, I mean, people often, they're used to what the service that's delivered by a, a lab-tested appliance. And so we'll get people who really want something that they think is simple, like hot running water to take a shower, and they have no idea of the centuries of people exploding themselves with steam boilers that went into having relatively safe and reliable ways to do that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think this yeah. brings up that there's like a lack of bioregional specific skills. So you have these people, you know, that are completely unconnected to the dirt underneath them, and often we have designers or, you know, engineers like yourselves who are going to these regions to help them, and they've got, like, bioregional specific microclimate stuff that we've never seen, <laughs> or and we have to improvise and really rely upon the principles and the, you know, the root structures and patterning that we understand from our education. And that can be, like, really hard, and sometimes we can even be wrong. So I think that, I mean, what we're really lacking is a basic rudimentary skill level. Understand your dirt, understand your trees, you know, understand your, your water systems in your local area. Well, and a lot of times we... As a movement, I think permaculture is, we get a lot of permaculture people that, that come to our workshops and, and have us help with their projects. But a lot of us are still in that phase where we are moving to a new place and finding a new piece of land that we can afford to, to invest in. And then, or, you know, or we're investing by joining an existing, you know, a little intentional community or a family farm that's taking on a few extra people. And we're trying to build these communities that can do this. But that means a lot of us are, you know, I'm starting our fifth year on this place, I think. Um, so I don't have as much regional depth, and I'm really relying on some of the old farmers that I've met here that have been here for longer or... You know, my father-in-law has been here for 20 years, so he has a much better idea. You know, he was the one that decided how much insulation we were going to put in the addition, for example. He's like, I'm not going to question his decision because he's been here. He's lived through the winters. You know, at that point, I had visited once during winter and ran my car off the road, and that was my entire experience of the winter in the Okanagan. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, it's natural building generally involves using what's there in the landscape rather than shipping modular materials from, you know, one place to another and having something that's industrially consistent. Um, and for what we're doing, we are, we are kind of moving into a combination of both. We'll use some of the industrial standard materials like fire brick because it makes it easier to have a reliable result and to give people, you know, precise dimensions they can build to without having to adjust everything by a quarter of an inch in two dimensions, you know, because if you use older recycled brick, you can do that, especially um, for your kitchen project. It's worth knowing that, that you, almost any clay brick will handle temperatures up to about 2,000 degrees. Okay. So you don't have to get fire brick for a kitchen project if you're, you know, if it's in a situation where if it did fail, it wouldn't bring your house down. It would just be something you'd have to go back in there and maybe swap out the cracked brick in a few years. 
Hmm. Okay, that's awesome to know. Yeah. And I, you know, and, and, and I feel and like I, for a lot of areas, an outdoor kitchen is really what, I mean, legally speaking, it's probably the fastest way to get the uh, rocket mass, you know, heater, like, uh, cooking situation happening, you know, because putting that into your house and retrofitting your house, you know, is going to take some doing. <laughs> one thing, uh, the mass heater is not as useful in the kitchen as it is for a building that needs heat. Um, you can't use it for baking? It stores a lot of the heat. I would imagine you that you can't could use build it for... a little oven over top of it. Um, no, and no. there's... What I mean is, I imagine that you could make an oven with a rocket stove heating up the mass yeah. around the oven, and then you could actually yes, route that to something else. Um, the tricky part turns out to be getting the floor of the oven right. Without it cracking, huh. um, to bring if you're bringing the heat up under right. the floor. Right. Um, some people will bring the heat up through a slot behind this, the floor and have it go over the top of the oven and just have the top of the oven radiate down to heat the floor up. But really? um, the other thing, since you guys are also in an area where you get fires occasionally, um, uh, that's one of the things with the, with the <laughs> <laughs> like every year for the past three years. In a really yeah, scary way. Much worse yeah. every single year. Yeah, we had we had the worst fire in our state's history two years ago with the Carlton complex up here. How and then we had a much bigger one last year with the Okanagan complex that we could see from our property. Yeah, Luckily how, how, we were how, one of the hills that didn't burn, but I have, you know, three friends whose properties got burned over and in most cases their houses were saved and that was partly because they did a lot of preparation. I have, actually, if you want to put something up where people can see it, I have great pictures of, of Barbara Green's house after the fire, where, like, her little driveway circle with her little ir irrigated, um, she put in some swales and was doing, like, very micro-drip irrigation to, to start her little garden patch in Zone 1. And, like, her house in Zone 1 is the only thing that's still green. That's incredible. <laughs> and, um, I've heard that same exact thing happen in the Valley Fire to another permaculture family. It's absolutely yeah. and like, incredible. Like she had two sheds and a tractor across, or one shed and a tractor across the driveway that were melted down to slag, like everything burned. Um, but the, between the driveway and the fire crews that, that helped defend the house and the swales that were, you know, this nice little lush green zone one, you know, and Barbara's been a firefighter before, too. She she kind of knew what she was looking at as far as making sure that her property was well-prepared to be defensible. Um, how, how many acres she, was that? How many acres went up in that fire? I have no idea. It's it's probably better to measure it in square miles rather than acres. Okay. <laughs> but um, if you want to look it up, it's the Okanagan Complex, and you can look up those wildfire histories on a, on InsuWeb. It's the incident... Um, incident response sort of central data place and they'll publish maps of the fire for fire crews to use yeah i used the i used the one with the uh, the maps that overlay for the past hundred years and they do by decade by color for california <laughs> uh, we had 150 yeah. acres go up and it basically blocked out the sun for two months last summer and it's going to be so much worse this year and it's kind of like you don't know what to say to people uh like because you, you can't, you can't like sugarcoat it. Um, yeah. But people are like, well, oh, it's really so good we got to... the rain. And it's like, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
it's, I mean, we got a lot better snow this year than we did the past two years. So, so we're all kind of hoping that it'll be better this year up here. Um, but we, yeah, the, the climate's changing. I mean, that's, that's something that's happening. And it's also, we've been tapping down a lot of our water resources and a lot of our infrastructure development in the conventional sense has been designed to take water off of the properties, you know, to drain the fields and all this other kind of stuff. And so we are sending a lot of the water we do get out to the ocean as fast as possible to turn back into salt water. Um, and so that's a big thing that I think most permaculture people, especially in arid climates, are actively working to sort of reverse that trend and start being a lot more, uh, a lot more wise stewards of the water resources and, and try to keep it in the landscape longer. I mean, it's sort of one of the fundamental things that's going to be different between a permaculture farm and a conventional farm from what I've seen. Um, yeah, well, the work like Brad Lancaster is doing uh, down in Phoenix is absolutely incredible. Um, his book, uh, I don't know if you've seen the rainwater uh, harvesting for drylands and beyond. He has... He has equations, and in the back of it, he's got like charts, and he's got everything to to cool. to use to actually take to an engineer who's working on your house, or to take to uh, to get uh, permission to do things to get permitted. It's all in there. It's absolutely incredible, and those kind of resources uh, really do lend themselves to those kind of calculations. But certain yeah. things like um, you know, certain things are very difficult to calculate. And so, getting back to the, the past, present, and future of rocket mass heaters, um, I, we, we've kind of reached the point, and I think that people are starting to get it, that there, at least in the movement that I've been talking to, um, there's a complexity here within this technology that, it, that, that, that we need to, I mean, it's gonna take, I think, a generation of tinkering with this probably to start really getting what what could come out of it and yeah because i mean what are some of this because i know you guys have have done some things in the past year or two that have kind of broken records and set a new tone um, and really kind of made it so that everyone's imaginations peaked everyone's kind of excited about what could be happening and I, i was wondering if you could share some of those going on in the last few years. Um, one is there's been some really wonderful get-togethers. Uh, Paul Wheaton has hosted these innovator gatherings. He's calling it the Pyronauts Innovator Gatherings. And so we've got um, folks coming from all over the world just, just by invitation. Peter Vandenberg um, from the Netherlands, Tim Barker from Australia. Um, actually, two of us turned out to be from Washington. I didn't realize that, that uh, Matt, uh, Matt Walker is from Western Washington, and then we're from the east side. Um, we had uh, Lassa Holmes come down from Alaska last year. And so, you, you know, you're in a space with a handful of other people who've really been geeking out on this for years. And then each of you has your latest iteration of something you've been meaning to try. And Paul Wheaton has gone and bought you a whole bunch of toys to play with. So you've got materials to play with it. Um, you know, some people are still really working the how do we do a really affordable, you know, recycled material thing. Some people are working like, like uh, Lassa brought some purchased cast stovetop and, and cast, 
you know, or welded doors and, and sort of really more of a um, plug-and-play setup to demonstrate one of the little cabin heaters that he and, and uh, oh, he and Max and Kiko, and I think Matt was working on that too, they're working on a, it's, uh, it's a style, it's, it's come out of the rocket because it came out of the question of could people build a bigger firebox? And so Peter's been working on batch boxes. Um, two years ago, he did an eight-inch batch box that was one of the cleanest burning stoves I've ever seen or heard of. And this was his first prototype scaling up to that dimension and probably the second one of that size that had ever been built in the world. I think he had one collaborator that was building a, a prototype you know, with his advice, but he hadn't actually been physically there to help. And so that... You know, he was, if, okay, so if you've got one of these fancy Testo emission sniffers, and Peter and Matt both have the high-end models, I think we have a, a sort of a, a lower-end model that does a little bit less of the modeling. But if you have one of those sniffers, then around, it'll shut off around four to 5,000 parts per million of carbon monoxide because that's where you start to get really thick, visible particulate smoke, and it'll really gum up the tester if you put that through it. So it'll shut off and purge itself and then try again when you, you know, in a few seconds when the fire might be burning cleaner. Um, if you can get down to like 100 to 500 parts per million, that's considered really clean. Like that's a very satisfying result for somebody who's been bringing up a new stove model. Um, and for the 45 minute test, the middle 30 minutes on Peter's stove were running between six and 12 parts per billion. Wow. It's just incredibly, incredibly clean. Um, and that's with Peter running, building the fire and knowing exactly how far to keep it back from the air intakes and so on so that he's not gumming anything up. Uh, if you, if you let a piece of wood fall into the critical mixing gap, then all bets are off the thing can smoke as bad as a regular wood stove, but, or almost, not quite as bad as a regular wood stove. Um, but yeah, when you run it properly, and when, when they're built with the equipment and tested to those standards, um, you really, I mean, people were making comparisons like that's probably less carbon monoxide than you get by burning a candle. You know, that's, I mean, that's, even even the standard J-tube that wasn't really designed with, with that kind of equipment on hand is comparable to something like a, um, what was it? We had, a, we had a grad student from Italy come over last year and do some testing on our stove in, you know, in June when it wasn't running at its sweetest. And uh, he was saying it was comparable to like a, like a methane furnace or something like that, like a, like a natural gas furnace. Um, you know, which is which is in that few hundred parts per million range. It's it's um, it's not miraculous, but it's certainly impressive, and it certainly puts them. It just it just changes the whole idea. Like if wood heat doesn't mean you have to put out a yellow smoke pall that fills your valley, and regulators get really upset about the air quality. If you Absolutely. can burn wood, and you can be super clean to the point where you're competitive or better than a lot of the conventional refined fuels and you can do it with materials that you know a large part of the materials are free if you're if you're working in a permaculture setting or if you're working in any kind of a homestead where you can you know we're speaking of wildfire you gotta like clean some of the ladder fuels and deaden down out 
to make spaces, like, like to make fire breaks around your house. And all of that is perfect fuel for burning in one of these things. So even if you buy a little bit of cordwood because you get tired of splitting wood, you're going to buy a lot less. And you're also going to be able to get, you know, stack those functions as you're cleaning up your yard or filling your woodshed. Absolutely. So I feel like yeah. there needs to be like a rocket mass heater university where we teach people how <laughs> to cut wood properly, how to dry wood properly, um, how to, I mean, we do, uh, we do teach, you know, silviculture, so how to do pro forestry work, you know. We need to teach people how to load um, a, a rocket mass heater, and not only how to build one or design one properly, understand the properties of it, just to understand fire, too, you know. Oh, so, my goodness, yeah. So the, we need, like, a fire university, and it's like maybe uh, firefighters go through it and uh, take some courses because they want to understand fire better. And, it, I, I mean, humans are defined, in my mind, like, especially, I mean, I'm reading... I'm, I'm reading uh, all these different things right now, like Alan Savory's book, and I'm, I'm reading Regrarians and everything, and, you know, the subtext of, like, the whole context that we're in right now is because humans started using fire in a widespread way. Humans are defined by fire, and I don't see why we don't have fire universities. Well, it's, it's, we're almost going the opposite direction. We're teaching kids not to play with matches, and we've had people in their 20s that would come to a workshop and never lit a match, you know, because it's, you know, taking the fire away from people makes them safer. And then if you get in a context where you need it to survive, I mean, in Detroit, we were hearing stories about squatters that would light a wood fire in the kitchen stove like in the oven, because that was the place that seemed the safest to light a fire in a modern house. And they're not designed for that. They're designed to bake at 450, 500, and a clean fire is going to burn 1,500 to 2,000 degrees. You know, even once, yeah, and so it's like you're burning, even just to get the wood burning, you're over 1,000 usually. And so, you know, you you melt the metal of the stove and and any of the insulation around it, and, you know, it's probably, you know, within half an inch of some woodwork behind it. And they, you know, light the place on fire trying to stay warm. Um, And we just, we don't have the, we don't have the common sense. And we also don't have, legally speaking, we've we've come to a place where we have the luxury of expecting that nobody's going to die because they're stupid. (laughs) And so we don't really move through the world with an expectation that we are responsible for not just the intentions, but the results of our actions. Um, and that, you know, it's just, it's a whole process to get people started back on the track of having more of those coping skills where they can, they can understand the world well enough to control the effects of their actions and then to go back and fix it if there is a problem they didn't anticipate. You know, the the difference between somebody who sets a fire and maybe a log rolls down and they can judge whether the wood's, you know... Like whether they can reach in and move that log because the end's not burning yet. You know, there's, there's, at, at this point, both Ernie and I have trained as, as wildfire fighters. Ernie did it for about 20 years um, when he was, you know, just um, in his 20s and 30s. And I've done it just for the last year or two here. Um, and so there's, there's insights that do move back and forth between those those two specialties between trying to work with fire in the 
kitchen or, or heating context, like in the, in the home, and then trying to work with fire in the larger outdoors. And, and you, again, you start to see things as not just fuels, but like as fuels whose moisture content is changing over time. Uh, in wild firefighting, you talk about, you know, one-hour fuels being like grass and little pencil-sized shrubs and 10-hour fuels being like one-inch sticks and 100-hour fuels being like, you know, more like what we'd normally think of as firewood. And then 1,000-hour fuels would be, you know, stuff that's like eight inches around or bigger, where it's literally going to take about three months for that moisture content to change significantly. So like the last week of weather doesn't really affect whether you're average ponderosa is going to burn it's it's remembering the last three to six months <laughs> and that's what affects you know the core moisture and the, what it's got to draw on as far as how long it can it can resist the, the fire um so yeah it's it's and most people find fire really fascinating and um it really plays on deep emotions um, it's something that we've used in religious ceremonies for a long time. The, the responsibility of tending a hearth was a sacred responsibility, and a lot of the old, you know, polytheistic pantheons have a hearth goddess as well as, as you know, a, a god who's like a blacksmith or whatever. There's, there's all of these sort of sort of mythic archetypes that play into our relationship with fire. Uh, it's used in grief healing ceremonies uh, in some of the Native American context. Um, and you have bonfire vigils and things like that, 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 you know, they just, it's just, it resonates and it's, there's a little bit of a danger with that really. Um, not only like, will a three-year-old veer toward an open fireplace and try to go touch it, but, you know, because we don't have that instinctive fear the same way that most animals do about it. But we also... It's really easy to get sucked into something, like if it's your first time playing with fire and you're doing it for a good intention kind of reason. Uh, like I feel like biochar is one of those things that catches people that way, where you go to a workshop and you build a little stove that uses wood pellets to make biochar, and you get really into this process and you keep, you know, iterating more and more versions of these stoves that are designed to you know, the ostensible purpose is to put carbon back into the landscape, but to do that, you're burning a fairly dirty fire unless you actually have a use for the wood gas fire that you're putting out. Um, and it's really easy to feel really satisfied by the process of playing with fire and not necessarily to, you know, emotionally, you don't necessarily question whether what you're doing with it is actually... Um, the, the effect is the same as the intention. Right. There's not a holistic um, process. Well, like one of the things we get a lot is uh, people that want to do a rocket mass heater for an aquaponics greenhouse. Um, and that's a, it's another thing where if you look at the whole process, there's a lot of fish that are happy all the way up to like right underneath the ice sheets on the North Pole. Right. I don't really need hot water to grow fish. But you do need a certain temperature of water if you want to grow tilapia to market in less than a year, right? right? And so if you're planning to market tilapia and you don't live in a place where the water is naturally going to be 70 degrees to 80 degrees, then you want some heat. Um, but one of the, we usually talk ourselves out of that jobs by offering a list of regionally appropriate 
fish. <laughs> like, if you just want some fish poop for your plants, like, carp's really good, koi's really good, catfish are pretty decent, you can eat them if you need to. But if you grow fish in muddy water, they're going to taste muddy. So then, you know, if you want to keep relatively clean water and have a marketable fish, there's a lot of native fish that you can grow, and in the Midwest, they'll actually buy live sport fish to stock lakes for fishing derbies and have a trophy fish or two in there that they, you know, can make their derby more popular. Anyway, it's just, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of context to being able to choose when you need a fire and when you don't. Um, and coming back to your outdoor kitchen, in the burn ban season, in the summer season, summer to early fall, um, you're not going to want to have an open, uh, you know, an outdoor fire, especially without a spark arrestor. Um, and so what an outdoor, but, but there's, the burn bans don't always apply to indoor fireplaces. Like you could still run a wood cook stove that had a proper spark arrestor if it's inside your house. And so there might be some gray area where you, you end up building enough of a building for your outdoor kitchen that it qualifies as an indoor stove. Oh, that's cool. That's smart. Um, and, it, and it's also good sense just not to, like, light your backyard on fire during fire season. You know? Right. But I mean... <laughs> it's embarrassing if you're trying to be a good model. Ideally, at that point in the summer, we're making the up and we're doing things that are cooling our bodies. Yeah, because, man, oh, it is I mean, so hot in August here. So, yeah. looking towards the future, um, in my own mind, I'm thinking the bigger we go with the, with the idea, I mean, because, I mean, in my mind, a rocket mass heater is essentially a tromp of fire. So we're focusing the flame with tromps are focusing the power of water to get air pressure and pressurized and cooled water. And so a, 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 a rocket mass heater or just a rocket stove, the J-tube innovation is really the Tromp. Um, they're very similar. And, and so I imagine that we could run turbines. I imagine that we could do steam and we could replace a lot of the industrialized systems if we, cal if we get things calibrated right, if we get the wood moisture, the wood size, the load, all those things correct, because I... That's another thing that, you know, it took me a while to really understand was it's, you really don't have an exact um, output if you're just taking yeah, a big fire from your yard. Yeah, which natural variables. Yeah, there's a natural variable. And for an industrialized energy-creating system, that is, um, and if we trade on a, on a market system and people want projections and all these sorts of things, having a compass-based um, all natural, nearly clean energy, like a power plant, essentially, um, it, it's not going to be. It's not going to be like a stopwatch. It's going to be much more variable. And so I have all these ideas yeah. in the cities. We could do it. We could, we could leverage all these things so that we could be heating up all the different floors on as we build buildings. Like we could have rocket mass mass heaters built into the buildings themselves, so that it would take the responsibility away from the people, and it would be more uh, controlled, more industrial. You know what I mean? Because they could calibrate that, and then they could have calibrated wood fuel for that. Um, so I mean, wh wh where do you imagine things going? What's the 
the limit? What where's where's there no limit? You know. Well, there's there's no limits. I I can't imagine everything the future's gonna carry. Of course. Um, one thing that I imagine about the future is that as we like right now, most of our assumptions about what makes something affordable, what makes it efficient, are based on fuel being cheap. Um, and we've been in that situation throughout most of the industrial age. It's like if you can build a giant machine with a lot of refined metals and you can pump fossil fuel energy through it, either through steam or, or um, electricity or whatever, um, and, you know, that's going to make your production so much cheaper than just having people try to do it by hand, right? Because those fuels are cheap, and so the refined materials are cheap, and the mechanized processes are cheap. You know, we build a fire in a internal combustion engine and ride on it to go three blocks to the store. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that only makes sense in a very specific historical context. <laughs> like, if you had to start from scratch and build yourself a car in order to go to the store, you'd be old by the time you got your groceries. Um, and so I, I see... In terms of the future that I'm helping with, I see a lot of sort of re-examining of what is, what is it that we actually need and want for our comfort and for having a life that feels abundant and satisfying. And then how can we address those needs as directly as possible? So things like being able to sit on your heater and put your toes under the cushions and get warm without having to light another fire. Um, or without having to run a fire continuously at night while you're asleep um, and you don't know what that fire is doing and you don't know whether the cat just knocked something into the stove and so on. Um, it's, so, it, so really, I see things, I see us relearning a lot of sort of ancient skills and I see us using our scientific knowledge and all of the progress that we've, we've gotten access to over this industrial age I see us turning around and putting that back into, um, you know, like like the uh, the testo equipment as a case in point. People using really high end industrial machinery to perfectly calibrate a fire that runs very efficiently on an armload of wood to produce enough heat, you know, for overnight or for a day or two. Um, and it's like we're turning around and taking all the things that we've learned with this energy boost. Um, and then learning how to go back and make that really efficiently serve people and, and serve us in ways that are not just not just making us so that we don't have to work so hard, but serve us in ways that are keeping us healthy, helping us find a healthier relationship to our landscape, having an amount of work that, you know, like I go out and chop wood maybe twice a week in the winter, and then Ernie does it a little bit too. And it's like, if I don't do that, I throw my back out from sitting around all winter. Huh. Yeah, I but think that, like, that there's an appropriate amount do, of hard work. Yeah, if I had to chop wood every day, and if I had to chop the amount of wood that my father-in-law used to burn with his wood stove every day, I would not find that healthy. <laughs> I would not find that to be a pleasant and comfortable little bit of getting out. I would find it to be a real obligation to stock that much wood to be able to burn through that much. Um, so it's, it's like finding, finding the balance where your life really works well for you. And that's, I mean, that's the future I see permaculture working toward. 
in terms of the rocket mass heaters, um, our book is coming out in June. That's the immediate future. And that's really a basic how to build something that works without having to go through all of the known errors at this point. And with that, you know, with the, with the design having kind of stabilized, at least to the point where it's predictable, we are starting to see um, different jurisdictions accepting these for permitting. Wow. Um, and so like that where? is a really big thing that I'd like to see continuing to spread for the next 10 years or so until it's just kind of a no-brainer that people can build these. Yeah, can you, you know, tell us where? Uh, we had one in upstate New York. Mm -hmm. We had uh, some actual specific code developed in Portland, Oregon, so there's now a one-week approval process in the Portland metro area. Wow. Um, yeah. And that's, that's in a, one of the appendices to our book is the whole Portland code, as, as they wrote it with notes on what I would have done if I had not been moving in the middle of the final submission of that document. Huh. Um, we have, we also have, like you were saying, we have them being converted to other applications where you need steady heat. Um, so we have, for example, several people who've used them for making wood drying kilns uh, in places from, you know, um, Canada to Idaho to Costa Rica where they're trying to dry tropical hardwoods faster, you know, and using some of the waste from, this is, is it, cool guy that we met on permies.com who's um, reforesting a cattle ranch and doing like small scale high end cabinetry, you know, lumber sales as a way to, to fund the, 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 you know, the sort of the silviculturing of this, this ranch that was formerly tropical rainforest that got stripped down to become open pasture. Anyway, so it's, it's like you can use it for, for things like that. You can use it for, uh, we have people doing small-scale aquaponics where um, they're just using it to kind of boost their duckweed production in the winter to, as a feedstock or things like that. Um, we have we have some very interesting work being done on rocket-fired hot water. Um, Tim Barker's really kind of the, the leading innovator in that field, but there are other people that have been putting together things that I consider um, both effective and safe um, so with, with really that, fairly clever. Um, the, the classic the classic water heater that I know of is the barrel within the barrel with the tube of, of water like running through it that is heated up. Yep. It, and you can do that on a smaller scale with an open pot on top of your rocket stove and then putting a coil into that pot. Huh. Okay like that. Yeah. And the idea is the, the, I, it's a whole different conversation I think and I'm not Sorry. I'm not a very good plumber. I can I can just about hook up a sink. Um and so I rely on people with more in-depth plumbing experience to make sure those things are safe. But what I do what I have figured out is some of the dangers of water besides steam explosions. Um you have a little bit of a quandary where Open systems have a lot of oxygen, and so there's more potential for corrosion and algae growth and, and things gunking up generally, uh, bacteria. Huh, right. Pressurized systems don't have that air coming in. They don't have as much contamination, but then they have a much higher explosion risk. And so that's where that open pot with a coil running through it really gives you some um, sort of best of both worlds where you can run potable water through the coil 
with just a little bit of pressure on it. I think one of the first systems Tim worked on, it was just a gravity hit, but it got you up to about, you know, about 15 pounds of pressure, which adjusts the boiling temperature a little bit so that you're not going to boil the coil even if the pot's boiling. Um, and you have something where the water, the potable water can be stored cold and then sort of heated on demand if you want to take a shower with it. And so you're not building up the lukewarm bacteria loads where you might have problems like legionnaires and that kind of thing. It's just, there's, it's a really simple design that takes care of a bunch of really deadly problems all in one go. It's, it's, it, and it takes a lot of experience to, um, to make a design like that where you, where you use all the properties of na the natural world <laughs> to take care of all the other properties of the natural world that might be trying to get you. <laughs> it's like, um, and then because you've got the big heat sink in terms of the tank, the natural variability of the wood fuel heating it up, it doesn't really matter if it heats up faster for five minutes than solar for five minutes. Um, you know, and there can, there can be like a factor of two to four difference in just how much energy your fire is delivering, even when it seems like it's running relatively normally. Yeah, so that's an interesting thing. Have you thought about installing a sensor when you build it that you have that is outside so that you could hook it up to a machine that could monitor, like, I just incubated some eggs, so in my mind I'm like, I would, I would want a rocket stove that self-fed, monitored its, its temperature, <laughs> and then ran a turbine that ran my electricity for that area and that automatic feeder? Um, we've had people do, like, gravity-fed pellet hoppers, mm -hmm. but the, the thing with automation and fire <laughs> is um, what happens if the power fail system, like, the more moving parts and the more systems you have integrated, the, the more vulnerable you are to one of those parts stopping moving? Of course. Um, so the, the pellet hopper worked great for four years, but it built up a little bit of sticky resin in the feed from the pellets. And over time, it got more and more prone to, um, as I understand it, it got more prone to blockages or, or stop feeding. And then eventually, it stopped feeding with the pellets close enough to the firebox that the fire ran back up the hopper and lit the whole hopper on fire. Nice. Unfortunately, filled the greenhouse with smoke at a time when there were a lot of things like tomato plants that hate smoke. and. You know, if you go through history, you'll find that bakers um, have, like, shaped the histories of wars because they'll be, like, under siege, and then some baker, will, a spark will fly out and it hits, hit, like, their, their fuel or, yeah, it's bakers, and they're always up at really odd hours, and so they notice things <laughs> like, hey, wait, I think they're tunneling beneath the city. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, yes. <laughs> For yeah, sure. so there's it, a I lot mean, of, I, I like the idea of a feedback system. Um, my, my emphasis in the work that we've done, me and Ernie, is to make things that have as few moving parts as possible, as, as robust as possible, and that, that automatically do a set of jobs that's really useful, um, like being able to heat overnight without any extra dampers that you can set wrong, without any extra, um, you know, and without being dependent on a fan that might stop if the power goes out. 
Um, you know, because people did die in Maine when the power went out in the middle of the night and their pellet stoves stopped running because the fan stopped. You know, they had automatic shutdown pellet stoves, so nobody caught on fire, but several people froze to death. Whoa. Um, so it's like that's that's where we're coming from that context where if heat we assume that heat is a critical resource if you're bothering to go to all the effort of producing it right if you can get by with passive solar and you don't really need heat then you would do that right, right. so we assume you're calling us because you need us and it, and if it's a need where you your family could suffer or be harmed if it doesn't work then we want it to be as robust as possible um and not have it produce dangers that can sneak around and bite you in the back when you're not looking. Um, I my relationship with fire is I just I more and more profound respect that I don't want it to be left on its own with nobody looking. And so if I can make something that's convenient to tend while you're doing your normal things, you don't have to go somewhere special and remember to check on the fire. Um, that feels more like the right relationship between people and fire to me. Yeah, um, I agree with that. That's not to say that it's a relationship everybody can live with. You know, if you really need something automated. I mean, and, and speaking of, like, weird things that people have done with rocket-like technology, <laughs> okay. um, there was there was a diagram up for a while of the chemical weapons disposal furnaces at uh, one of the Oregon um, military bases okay. that... Okay. Um, it looks a lot like a rocket stove with a giant, like, bomb disposal dome over it instead of a barrel. <laughs> it's like they've, they've got a very similar sort of circulation system, but they're feeding it with a controlled refined fuel. I think it's natural gas instead of with wood. Um, but it's like just in order to get the firebox up to very high temperatures and hold it there in a way that gets rid of the nasty chemical weapons, it's a really similar technology. <laughs> Wow. And it's like, I, you have no idea where this, this might go, where these ideas might end up being useful. Well, you know, I mean, it goes back to, you know, like the Kang uh, stove. It goes back to um, a lot of these early, early technologies that got turned into things that we still have today. I mean, like Tromps, for instance. Like, we have Tromps that, you know, Peter the Great, has his summer mansions, fountains, do all these fun, fancy dances and tricks and stuff. They're all on timers and it's a performance and everything. Yeah, it's run on a trump with zero electricity and it's from, I think, the 17th century. So Yeah, well, we, there's we ancient Persian fountains that are run from, you know, basically underground. They're called Qanats, Q-A-N-A-T. Um, they're, they're basically an underground aqueduct that, that's that's dug into the earth so they don't have the kind of evaporation you get with an open aqueduct. Um, but it's, yeah, there's, it's, there's not really limits on human ingenuity, but there are, there are sort of physical laws of the universe that we can adapt to as we learn them better and be able to get, uh, get what we need with less, um, you know, less vulnerability and, and less waste. I think, what I do, once I've got a robust heater that I trust, um, your idea about like being able to add a monitor that's powered from the heater, I mean, you could certainly do add-ons where if the add-ons stop working, the heater doesn't fail. Um, so like we have a little squirrel cage fan behind our barrel 
that just blows room air around, but it helps circulate air off of that barrel and get the heat distributed more evenly in certain parts of the house. Um, I've seen those little electrical generators like for cell phone charging off a camp stove. And you could certainly put something like that on there. There's, there are real limits to how much energy can do what. And I think a lot of people are not aware of how many losses you get every time you change the form of the energy that you're working with. I always talk about your um, coal example, about how you're better off buying a bag of coal and taking it home and burning it than using electricity to heat your home that's made out of coal at a power plant. Well, if yeah, if you're looking at the losses in transmission, now the, elec the electrical plant can have big scrubbers <laughs> on the exhaust, which you probably can't afford at home. So if you can get good clean coal, that's, that's a different thing than burning some dirty ground coal. Hmm. But yeah, it's... There's economies of scale, which are particularly common in the industrial world. But weighed against that is the economies of human nature. Um, if the fact that you had to go to the store and buy the bag of coal and carry it home means that you're going to be really aware of how much coal you're putting into the stove and how soon you're going to have to go get another bag. Um, you know, that's that's sort of one of the truisms that a lot of people learned in the 70s is, you know, a, a diesel generator powering your house where you have to go get another five-gallon can of diesel and pour it into the generator to keep the lights on tends to be a much more efficient solution because people become very conservative in how they power their house. If you just have lights on that are very cheap, that come from a central location that's, that's managed by somebody else, uh, it's almost like... You know, I don't know if you are familiar with the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. Uh, I've read the first one. Okay, the, the, the last one in that series has the concept of the somebody else's problem field, <laughs> which is a much cheaper way to make things invisible than actually trying to make them invisible. You just, you just have this somebody else's problem field generator where people like walk past it and don't look at it because it's somebody else's problem. Oh, that's... And, uh... It's, it's, I, I feel like the, some of the things that we do with economies of scale where we separate the consumer from the knowledge of the process that's happening or from the work of that process leads to all of those externalized costs becoming somebody else's problem and we don't think about them and we don't, you know, you end up with these weird, you know, parents trying to get their teenagers to turn off the lights because the teenager's not even connected enough to the situation to see the power bill. Right, but this problem is even in permaculture. So this Darren Doherty and I were talking about this. He's saying that we don't have the decision-making skills. And that's where holistic management comes in because it actually gives us tools to make good decisions. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. I've, I've, been, I've been reading a lot. <laughs> well, and how would you make a decision if you don't know the factors that are at play? Well, you would first, uh, I mean, you, you have a process, and in that process, you would identify what you don't know, and then you would do yeah. research and seek out to try to remedy those unknowns before you have a complete idea of what your decision will be. And I think that we don't think that way. Instead, uh, and I'm totally taking this directly from Holistic Management, basically, uh, by Alan Savory, we instead find out what, like, is easiest or what costs the least or what um, happens the quickest. We go for these, these like, we're moving like water, you know, we're looking for the path of, path of least resistance. And often that can be great, 
But um, just because it works out the way we predicted it would doesn't mean that there's all these other like un uh, uh, unforeseen things going on that we didn't even think about. And that 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 seems to be often the case. And we, we, we tag on, like, common sense or not knowing permaculture or all these different things, but it really boils down to we don't know what we don't know because we're not asking good enough questions. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. That's, that's Anytime you try something new that you haven't done before, the process of trying to imagine what you don't know, there's no possible way to know that until you've done it. And even once you've done it, you might get lucky and not learn half the things that could have stopped you that time that will stop you next time until you figure them out. Right. It's got yeah. to be the whole what's important to me now game. And so you have to just keep going. And, and I mean, but that's even, even that process is a recognition of not knowing. Well, one of the things that I've come to really respect, <laughs> you know, coming out of a real liberal college-educated family, um, you know, I mean, there was like, you know, so you'd see the bumper stickers about the spotted owl in Oregon and people saying, save the spotted owl and people saying, you know, loggers are an endangered species. And, you know, we were definitely on the spotted owl side, not really knowing much about what was going on at all. There's all kinds of depth behind that whole thing, including the possibility that the lumber companies involved had deliberately hired the biologist to leak something about an endangered species so they could get out of their contracts and go log Siberia instead. Wow. But, uh, so that's, that's like backstory. But the other thing I've really come to appreciate as an adult who's actually spent some time living in the country now is there's a really big shift that happens if you have people who've been, like, like uh, in the Oregon coast, it would often be seasonal fishermen, loggers, and then the year-round dairy farmers. Um, and that was kind of the three natural pegs of the economy, and then sort of tourism and other things and service would be kind of on top of that, on that base. And so you had people who were both seasonally commercial fishermen and seasonally loggers, and they had a 100-year forestry plan, and they had a lot of people who, like Ernie, was first handed a chainsaw at age four. He said it was like, a, it was a small one. It was a pruning saw, and they didn't let him fell trees when he was four. They just let him, like, cut on the stuff that was already down. Very awesome. But, and he was thrown in a fish hold as a playpen at age three or, be, or before. Just, you know, that they'd clean out the smaller fish hold and throw the kids in there with their toys and go fish and then use the bigger fish hold for the fish. And so it's just like you don't you don't know what you've forgotten about fishing if you're raised by somebody who was raised by somebody who was raised by somebody who's been brought up with it, you know, literally cut their teeth on it. Um, you know, he, his first salmon that he caught was bigger than he was. Um, and, and it's just like you – there's no way for a, a – person like me that comes out of college and then decides, oh, maybe I, I, I might like to be a sailor. Let's see what that's like. You know, at that point, I've got just a few years of brain plasticity left. I'm not as fast a learner as a kid would be. And I've got all of these things I have to unlearn that are appropriate in one context, but not appropriate in another. And so it's like, if you clear all the trees out in one generation, then you have a 20 to 80 year gap before you start logging that area again you really lose a lot of that on-the-ground knowledge about what works and what doesn't, how to do it safely, uh, what's going to cause huge landslides, like that Oso landslide we had up here in Washington. 
Um, and so there, Cobb had a similar gap. Building with Earth in Britain had about an 80-year gap where there's like just a few restoration projects and one old guy who maybe was the 20-something junior apprentice on the building site last time they were building Cobb commercially who decided it would be a good thing to teach the young people and build a, build a little bus shelter in Devon just to show people how it went. And it's like there are very, very few instances of transmission that bridge that 80-year gap so we didn't lose the entire knowledge of how it was done. But it's really scary. I mean, we have, what, two to 400 years of industrial society, and we believe that that is not sustainable. We believe that there's finite resources to support that, and eventually we're going to have to shift how we do things yet again. And if we lose millions, thousands and millions of years of knowledge of how to safely handle fire, how to build with materials that don't take thousands of BTUs of extra energy to process, if we lose that knowledge over the course of a few generations, trying to rebuild that knowledge is going to be, it's, it's a huge uh, amount of ground to make up. So I've come to really respect people that come from a family that's been doing a particular trade, even if it's even if it's gone back and forth between being professional and being a hobby. But if they've been doing that trade and teaching their kids for you know five to seven generations, those are the guys I want to go watch how they do it. You know, um, you know, because I know I know enough carpentry to make a V or an X instead of just a line when I mark something for cutting. But I had a, a cabinet maker in the museum that came in to fix a counter that. You know, I watched him work for five minutes and learn six new tricks like that. It's like he was—he was about every ten seconds doing another thing that was like, "Oh, in hindsight, I can see right why you did that," and it would have taken me an hour to make up the time if I didn't do that. <laughs> like, there's a lot of depth to the knowledge of how to physically create the world that we've come to. You know, from coming from kind of the suburban background where your your job is to live in it and pay for it. It's just, it's just such depth to the human relationship with the world. So. Yeah, I always think about how um, furniture was made without measurement. Uh, we used our bodies to measure it, and our eyes. And, uh, that's why, I mean, that's why, you know, you put up a, a slide in a presentation, and something's off-center, and half the audience knows, because it's slightly off-center. It's like, well... No one get the measuring tape out, and it's it is wrong, you know. And it's like people can tell, and it's because we're designed. We're we designed ourselves through generations of working with our hands, eyeballing things to such a perfect degree that when you look at it, it's gorgeous, and it's and it is not exact. It's not, but but it looks better than exact. You know what I mean? There's this humanness that and timelessness, classicness that we get when we are not a factory, <laughs> not a factory robot about things. Um, yeah. And I also There's, think... And I think... Yeah. You there? Yeah, I'm here. Just, I... Go ahead, you were gonna... You had another yeah, talk I coming just, in? I was just gonna say that I just think that the complexity that we fear... Um, is not is is actually it, it's the diversity of reality, but the the simplicity that we we keep lauding in our society as great 
is really the death of, you know, humanity, of, of complexity, of, of fun, of mystery, all these different things. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the things I love doing is trying to help people find the fun in change, because there is a, the one thing the modern world has really a lot of is things are going to change. I don't know if there's ever been a time in history when things didn't change, but we, we really get, we're really subject to getting fearful about change and resisting it and going through all these different stages of grief as we have to stay good, say goodbye to something familiar. And, you know, that starts with denial. <laughs> and um, the, the process of... No, I just lost my train of thought. It's okay. I can edit. The process, the process of being a creative problem solver... I think is really, really critical to the future of humanity. And whether that means solving your own problems on a very personal level or finding ways to fit your right livelihood in with the kind of change you want to see at a global level uh, or something in between where you're really committed to a particular landscape or a particular community or a particular um, movement. Um, Movement is life. That's that's what I wanted to say. We have this we have this rational Greek ideal that that things should be unchanging and permanent, and that a really nice, durable, hard building is better than one that falls down in a hundred years or ten years, for that matter. Um, but that there's a there's a contrast I like to draw between there's the live the world of life and death. And you can't, they're not opposites. They're, they're parts of the same process. Things grow and change and they feed on other things that are in decay. Um, and the whole process of life is a process of individual trees taking up the space that other trees might want and individual uh, animals having sort of a love-hate relationship where squirrels are stealing the seeds of the trees but they're also burying them and planting new trees, right? Um, every creature but us plants the seeds of what it eats. You know, we've, we've created a little sanitary break between what we eat and the seeds we plant, and we keep our seeds in a little sanitary package over here instead of planting them with our poop, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but just there's, there's this process of life feeding on itself and driving and growing on itself, and that process includes the kind of change that's scary where something dies or something gets sick or that kind of thing because something else is trying to feed on it. Uh, or it's just, it's gone through so many changes that it's no longer stable and, and um, you know, the body starts to break down through, you know, things that are also kind of part of how everything works. The contrast to that, if you really want an eternal, a permanent, um, an unchanging physical object in the physical world, um, you're talking about something that is not living or dead. You're talking about something that's that's like a stone or like concrete or like, um, you know, a Ziploc bag is a permanent solution to a temporary problem, right? A styrofoam cup is a thousand-year solution to a, you know, one-day problem. Maybe a 10-minute problem if you're just grabbing a cup of coffee on your way through the hotel. You know, and the process of solving that, you know, it, that's where, like, if you really have a 10-minute problem, 
then maybe a one-week solution like a wax paper cup is really a better approach than a thousand-year solution like styrofoam. Wow, wax paper cups, that's like the 80s. I remember those. Well, I mean, they're coming back, but they're like upmarket now with like eco printed all over them. So. <laughs> Ooh. We'll have apple juice in these and graham crackers. Bio biodegradable soy-based wax. <laughs> Man, it's so funny. Of course, it's GMO. Oh, quite likely, yeah. Yeah. But, but still, it's something that I can burn rather than something that's going to be, you know, a permanent thing. I, 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 like, I just got a dog for the first time. I've had a dog for about a year now, and one of the things I've learned is to give him things to chew on that I don't mind turning into mulch in my yard. That's good <laughs> It's just like, you know, it's like all of the things that we enjoy become... Uh, in, you know, in the in the second law of thermodynamics, if you if you, every problem that you solve creates its own set of problems down the road based on the solution you chose, and so I I've started really being a little bit conservative about making big changes before I've had a chance to get used to the problem I'm looking at, and I've also I really love this you know this is something I came to before I found permaculture, but the idea of if you can solve two problems at once, or three problems at once, where, where you put two problems together and you have a solution, then there's a possibility that you may have created more solutions than you created future problems. It's not guaranteed, but if you are only solving one problem at once in that kind of quick fix, put out the fire kind of way, there's a really good chance that you're creating more problems than you're solving in that process. Absolutely. Sometimes Especially... If we if we aren't imitating natural patterns or systems, yeah, and it, sometimes you have to. Sometimes you just have to put out the fi grease fire and like turn off the mains and figure out you know diagnose what happened to your kitchen system and you know you can't really avoid dealing with that as an emergency situation. But wherever it's possible to sort of lay in place things that are going to solve themselves or that are going to be sort of naturally, not just stable, but naturally productive. Um, you know, things that are moving toward the direction that we want without further effort on our part. To, and that's where using living systems um, that can provide multiple benefits and that grow themselves and reproduce themselves rather than taking energy to make them keep happening. Um, you know, anything that works on direct solar input seems like a pretty good bet for you know, that might be something that, that can give back to me rather than me having to keep tending it. So, um, Anyway, this, this is a long kind of digression into the nature of life on Earth rather than rocket stoves as such. It's okay. Um, this is the nature of complexity. <laughs> and most of, my, most of my show episodes kind of, we kind of range holistically through <laughs> subject matter, which is good, I think, because... Almost everything we get is sanitized and simplified. And I think that um, when we're talking about uh, rocket stoves or rocket mass heaters or common sense or people systems, especially people systems, um, the complexity is right there in our face. And if we don't acknowledge it, um, nothing we plan will ever go as we, as we, as we want it to. Uh, and I think alignment of objectives, um, processes, and um, and outcomes 
are very rarely taken into account. And as a teacher, that, that was, you know, drilled into me always, always, always. It's like, all right, well, if you're teaching this, how does it, how is it shown that they actually can do it? Without, and it's like, okay, so I need to create a situation where I'm not leading into the answers, where I'm not repeating something that could mirror. I want to actually see their true skills. And so, yeah. you know, it's so complicated and it's, you know, personalized to each person really when you get down to it. Um, so people need to get, get to this point where they start embracing complexity. And I think that for your industry to take off, uh, people need to understand that and put value in that complexity. Because we could, we could tomorrow, if there was the money and the will, you could be the head of a fire university and I would love to come and, 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 and learn uh, with everyone else because it is that valuable. And it, and it does, it would take teams of people to, to, to educate people on what really needs to happen at this point. No, I would love to do that. At present, I've just started putting more of that kind of stuff out on our blog. Mm. Um, I've been putting out, like, tips on how to deal with smoke and how to different ways to lay out fires. You know, I learned one way as a kid, and now there's, like, six ways that I that I know from all the different places that I've worked with it and people that I've learned from over the last couple of decades. And it's like, you know, that stuff, it, it's in our Art of Fire booklet, but it, that doesn't necessarily do the same thing, even even though we keep that one priced pretty low, it's still, I think a lot of times people need to get these things in small bites and then be able to go home and digest it and practice it and come back for another bite. Um, and the other thing, just from teaching, I like I like the fairy tale idea that the most important thing to know about your, your new magic that you're, you've just been given the cauldron of plenty or the horse that flies or whatever, is you need to know how to make it stop. <laughs> like, how do you get the flying horse back down to land? How do you how do you get the cauldron to stop making oatmeal when you're full? Hmm. Um, and so, teaching when te- teaching a technology with with context information about when it's appropriate, when it's not a good idea. Uh, what's what's your fallback plan if if this doesn't turn out to be what you thought it was going to be? Um, but the other thing is, I keep I keep hearing from some of the people we work with that the complexity is nice, and they don't necessarily want to have to repeat the process of learning all of that complexity in order to move forward with the part that they're they're needing help with. And so we try to start with getting everybody on the same page as far as an experience or buildable dimensions or something, you know, basically something where you can see something that works. You can see something that maybe challenges and helps you realize what your assumptions were that might not be correct and that might be stopping you from getting a better handle on the situation. You know, if you see fire burning upside down in my firebox and that violates something that you understood about how fire works, you know, you've got to, you've got to process that with it right there in your face in reality. You know, if you see it on YouTube and you figure it's photoshopped, it doesn't really help you get to that point of knowing how it works. Um, but if you build one, then it works. And then you're, you, you've got this sort of discrepant event that questions that assumption and makes you figure out, oh, okay, 
okay, it's moving up over here in the tall part, and that's making it move down in the short part over here. It's, uh, it's like an upside-down siphon. Right. We have to make sense of complexity in a way that introduces it in and of itself. That way people well, can, we, can understand even the concepts. Because for me, I didn't understand a lot of the concepts when I, because like you said, you know, you start swapping things out in your mind. You're like, oh, I could just put one in. But it just, it's not like that, really. <laughs> well, and people, we get a lot of people who are really heavy on the design science, both from permaculture and from engineering. And so they, they understand it in their head. And then they want to redesign it in their head to be more what they imagine they would enjoy. But if you haven't physically built that, if you haven't, if nobody has physically combined that particular set of functions yet, you have no way to know whether it's going to work well and whether it's going to be an improvement or a disaster. So, yeah. Anyway, so we're we're basically we're trying to hold the ground that we've got in terms of making it easy for people to try something that works without getting stuck down a lot of rabbit holes. And then we're looking at how, I mean, one really nice feature that Paul Wheaton has pointed toward is like, what would it be like if a quarter of the homes in North America were heating with something as efficient as a rocket mass heater instead of whatever they're doing conventionally? You know, he's getting calls from people that are protesting fracking while heating with natural gas. I know, it's so ironic. It's like the, the, the protests with the, uh, the petroleum-made kayaks to block the oil tankers. It's like, guys, you don't see the irony? And it's like, you know, it's, it, we, we have to get, we yep. have to be able to see the whole system, the whole cycle, yeah. and see our part in it in order to, I mean, I'm working really, really hard on getting myself off the grid food-wise. So I believe that's the easiest and the first step. It's the most basic unit that I can tackle. And then after that, I'll have savings start to build because I won't have to be paying for food. And then I can start moving towards, and I'll have abundance because, and then I can use that for trading. And I'll save all this money, and then I can pour that into more energy saving or more energy creating. You know, maybe I'm going to get into biodiesel. Um, so yeah, are you are you in a climate where you can grow some of the oil crops like like olives and things like that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I'm in I'm in the Mediterranean climate. We're I mean resinous plants are fire plants, you know. So yep. there's there's a lot of potential in this area for things that, you know what I mean. There's so much going on here, uh, and every region really has its own its own thing. But we uh, we could do the cacao pumpkins. We could do sunflowers. We could do uh, I bet we could do rapeseed, um, and then we've got. We could do grapeseed. Um, I bet we could probably, in some areas, do flax, mm -hmm. which is a little bit too flammable um, for my taste. <laughs> yeah, but it has that that side benefit of the oil plus the linen possibilities. Right. I mean, even um, yeah. Oh man, we we travel so much with the workshops at this point that we haven't tried to do a lot of food production here, but I have been learning about native food plants and starting to recognize more of what's already on the property. That's cool. But I work with a farmer down in the valley where I go and help out a day or two a week, and then we end up getting a lot of our food from them. And so it's like if I want to do an experiment that takes uh, irrigation, for example, it's pretty much going to happen down there where he's got irrigation and he's running it. And there's, a, there's enough of a community in place. You know, there's 
two adults that live on that place plus a few other volunteers that come in from time to time, you know, that we can kind of back each other up. And we've got another lady that raises goats, and when she needs to go away for the weekend, I milk some goats and put a lot of cheese in the freezer. And Yeah, for us, it's really... We're, we're a lot more in a place where it's a question of how can we serve um, people and have them come back and, and want to support us because what we've been able to do for them is making a big difference in their lives. Um, which, is, which is kind of like the normal economy and kind of not. It's like we, we end up putting a lot more... There's, there's this thing that you see in old world cultures of reciprocity, where if you someone does a favor, you're expected to respond with something in kind. They don't have to be absolutely equal value, but it's embarrassing if somebody keeps giving you things and you don't have something of similar value to give back. Yeah, well, that's the whole uh, social capital aspect that um, the Eight Forms of Capital talks about. Yeah, and I think... I think the capitalist model tends to assume a lot more competition. A lot of people, especially if you're raised in an urban context, there's sort of this dog-eat-dog mentality that you got to get ahead, and that means somebody else has got to be left behind. That's just how it works. Well, in my um, mind, and I'm trying to shift this in everyone I talk to, economy needs to be energy in your mind. Uh, you know, uh, or not in your mind, but every, everyone's mind is what I think, because... It's like, well, if you don't put equity into your relationship with your spouse, then you're not going to be able to take any equity out of it when you need it. So if, like, you're not there with your children, you don't invest in your ch- children. When you grow up in your, uh, um, when they grow up and you're an older person, they're not going to come visit you. And then when you're really elderly, they're not going to let you come and live with them. You're going to get put into a home, and that's just awful but it's because you didn't invest in your well, the economy because, of your family. Yeah, it's there's both the investment you put in and then there's the cultural expectations around what indicates success. You know, if that. you're if you're not successful as a parent because your thirty year old child is still living with you, there's this real strong expectation that you're gonna go out and make something of yourself and you're gonna get ahead and it's gonna be on this individual or nuclear family basis. This, you know, there's, again, parts of the old world where, um, you know, somebody from America goes back to the old country to, to share some wealth and show off how well they did, and people are still thinking he's, he's not much of a son because he left his mother living alone all these years. Yeah. Well, which is more you know, true? Like, if, you're, if you've got a family homestead where you've got two or three generations that are working together... And especially if you've got a big enough family that people still have some choice, you know, like like one of your kids maybe is off doing a professional career and one of your kids really likes farming and is sticking with it. It doesn't have to be the whole family on the farm. You might have some cousins that come in that really like farming and it's, it's you know, your kids have a choice about what they do, but, but there's enough of your family and, and your clan, if you will, kith and kin, the, the people that choose to be part of your family as well as the ones that are blood-related. Those groups... They can be really strong. They can be really strong and fairly stable because they have a lot of their cultural baggage is the same. And so if, they, if you've got a healthy family dynamic, then it's really easy to sort of settle into a, a constructive, a productive pecking order and just 
find your strengths and use them, and you have a strong sense of mutual benefit, right? If the family does well, you are all better off. And you don't have to have, I mean, you can get bitter sibling rivalries and things in a family too. Uh, what was it, what was, the, was it Alan Savory? It's the Australian shepherd that was saying he's the youngest of three and he doesn't think his, or is it Shepherd? He doesn't think his um, older brothers are ever really going to do what he does. He's going to have to prove it out to the point where their sons might take a notice. I don't think that's Alan. Alan's the guy in Africa. He's the holistic, okay. ma- uh, holistic management guy. Yeah, it's, it's one of it's one of the really like 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 early adopter demonstration projects in Australia. It's, it's a huge ranch, but it turns out it's or whatever they call it the station. <laughs> But it turns out it's only part of, of three stations that were split off the original family set up. You know, you, your little brother's not going to convince big brother to do things a new way. Unless yeah. they get over their sibling rivalry dynamic and something works so well that it's obvious and then they can take pride in it as a family rather than as individuals. You know. Yeah, well, I think the American, uh, the American family, you know, definition... Uh, was really broken up by the individual consumerism king among men kind of thing. And Yeah. I, yeah, and a lot of tiny that, little kingdoms that each of us is trying to run by ourselves. Right. And of course if you're a king you have to have a lot of expensive things to and so yeah, our our marketing professionals are really good at playing on those dynamics and you know, those insecurities about whether people think you're doing well because of all the stuff you have. So. Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and speaking so long with me and about so many amazing topics. I feel like our viewers, are, I mean, <laughs> I feel like our listeners are going to come away with a, a, a book they really need to get, and then they're also going to come away with a greater understanding of the complexity. Um, because that's, I mean, that's really what I deal with now. Now that I'm over the PDC hurdle, now that I've, you know, I really grasp permaculture, uh, I mean, I've noticed something like there's no social principles in the permaculture manual, you know, by Bill. And that's pretty huge. You know, we've got all these design principles, but we don't have um, social system principles. And boy, like, you know, Joel Saladin talked about being transparent as like one of his top principles. It's like, yeah, that should be in there, you know? We should have that as something we just say, you know? Um, so we're all in this process of embracing complexity and scaling up um, towards, towards facing, the, you know, all the problems that, we're, that, that the world is having right now. And I really appreciate your part in it because... I mean, without you I, and, and your husband, uh, Ernie, I, I just think that with, without you you two and the work that you've done, there would be a huge hole and a huge gap in, uh, in the innovation and in the hope because everything you guys do is so hope-filled and so positive and exciting and fascinating. Um, I know that there's so many people out there that aren't interested in farming that are engineers and tinkers and inventors and they are just totally excited about the, the work that you're doing and I, I just thank you both. Well, gee, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, it, we didn't really 
really go into the sort of personal backstory that's that's sort of driven us down this path. Um, you met Ernie, so you know that he's got that uh, messed up leg, which came from an accident on a volunteer site. Um, where, you know, <clears throat> normal pressures of modern life, a young mother taking her baby to the doctor who only had her license for three months ended up crushing his leg against a wall. Um, and it's the sort of thing that could happen to anybody, but he's a, he's a real survivor. He's, a, he's already been through things that most people, things that would stop most people, and they, and they don't stop him. And so this just, you know, this basically scaled back from trying to build seven buildings a summer to doing projects that we can help people get where they need to be in a weekend because that's the stamina he's got to stand up, you know. Um, and a lot of it, over time, a lot more of it has sort of fallen in, on into my my plate as I come up to speed, then I can take over a lot of the things and, and he can actually stand down and, and be, you know, a volunteer, be somebody who's helping as he can rather than everybody depending on it just being Ernie. But he's, you know, he took some of the early testing goals from the cop cottage work and he took care of, you know, he's just kept working on the things that they laid out that needed to be found out next. And there were some things that other people hadn't tried yet that he eventually you know, and sort of started taking on some other people's testing goals. And it's just been, it's a lot of it has come out of his emphasis on serving people and, and particularly sort of emergency and disaster relief is a big thing that he's, he's consistently been helping with, you know, these high risk situations like the wildfire fighting, like um, the hazmat cleanup was something he did for a while as a young man. And it's just like he's, you know, he knows what those chemicals are that, that melt the bunny suits that are in the air fresheners and things like that. It's like he, he's, he's been to the North Pole in open water in the 90s. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not hypothetical for him. It's not political for him. It's really about how do you um, take care of people and particularly as a, you know, as somebody who's been from a family of, sailors and fishermen since, as they put it, since Noah was a babe. You know, they had letters of Mark from King George. Um, he really deeply cares about the the oceans and the health of the fisheries um, and everything we do on land. Like, you talk about everybody's downstream. Well, the, that, that isn't as equally true for every place as it is for others. And the ocean is ultimately downstream of everything and our most fertile and fecund estuaries and the nurseries of a lot of the, the big fisheries uh, are places like the Gulf where you get one deep horizon spill and it screws up the fisheries for a lot of the Atlantic seaboard. And so it's like all of these things, you know, he used to work for oil exploration. He doesn't say that to permaculture people very often, but he was, um, he, you know, he figured if, if anybody was going to do it in, any, in his Arctic it was going to be him. It wasn't. He wasn't going to let them turn it into Oklahoma because they didn't know what they were looking at. And that's that's how he ended up um, finding out that the North Pole didn't have an ice cap that year. And um, you know, there's it was, it was breaks in the ice. There was still visible ice, but it's like his family's been at it long enough to know that, that there's supposed to be a polar ice cap, not just from reading about it in books, but from being there. And they they have connections to other families and tribes that have been up there for long enough 
that they could check, you know, whether anybody else maybe had longer knowledge of maybe this just happens occasionally. And no, it's, it's there's really supposed to be a polar ice cap historically. <laughs> yeah, that's really, really. I remember him telling that at PB2, that story, and my son was in the room, you know, and I thought, you know, a long time about, like, the hypothetical, like, you know, when my child grows up, there's going to be no tigers, no chimpanzees, you know. But it's it's already happening right now. Like, like, it's happening right now, yeah. No, they were, they were, um, it turns out that a dead polar bear floating in the water looks a lot like a person. Oh. So that's one of the memories that he has seared into his brain through his eyeballs is, is stopping to pick up what looks like a dead body because you're, you know, you find him up there. Um, so yeah, it's, if you have, Ernie doesn't have that kind of a depth of relationship with any particular place on land that, that old farmers get from multi-generation, you know, century farms and ancient um, manors and things like that. Uh, but I feel like he has that depth of relationship with the ocean, and that means that he has, in a sense, he, you know, he's been all over the world, the parts of it that have water on it, and the parts of it that are next to that. He learned to make bouillabaisse from Italian fishermen and got taken on a um, Southeast Asian fishing trip that turned out to be catching um, some kind of dinosaur, like caiman. Whoa. <laughs> and he's trained on halibut. So, like, you know, you just smoothly pull the whole fish up into the boat so that it doesn't, um, you know, it doesn't kick because it's like a sheet of plywood that can take take the line back down if you if you startle it too much. It's like it's got a lot of force being a fish that big. So he smoothly pulls this thing on the hook up into the boat. And, you know, about half the people with him jump out of the boat because they're not used to having the alligator in the boat. <laughs> like... Apparently, they usually kill it before you bring it into the boat because it's safer that way. <laughs> but yeah, he's, he he's, kill it by himself. Uh, no, he just held it up. He's you know he he can put his palm flat on an eight foot ceiling. He's he's two meters tall, and so he just basically he knew there was a steel leader on it, so whatever was on the end of it had teeth, like he had that much warning, and. Um, so he just basically held the thing up so it couldn't get enough of its feet or tail on the boat to be able to bite him. Well, somebody found something to kill it with. And that then they, and then they got to eat him. It's just like, you know, so he's, he's, he's got that. I think that's really where the passion comes from is he wants, he wants to see those, um, He's just got this really deep relationship with, um, with with that setting where it's not just beautiful and um, complex relationships where you, like he and his dad can track fish underwater, where you really you know and have this deep relationship with the context. Um, but it's also wanting to see that preserved, wanting to be wanting to see to be able to pass on those generations of knowledge of how to how to do water tracking how to read the weather um you know it has to be continuously updated and improved uh to work and it would be really nice if we didn't have too many more nuclear power plant disasters that made it so that it's hard to justify eating the fish oh yeah and i don't eat the fish i mean it would be really nice to um, you know, if sea level is in fact rising, which seems to be something
something they've been able to measure already happening, and they're certainly measuring ice sheets retreating. Like, that means a lot of our coastal communities, which includes most of the ones with nuclear power plants, <laughs> are going to be dealing with, um, you know, this big contextual change. You know, we're, we may end up with, with drowned cities off our current coast, the way that we have drowned cities off of Mexico and was it the Black Sea or the Caspian that's got like intact port cities from back before those two seas merged and down down in, you know, a few hundred or maybe a thousand feet of water. But it's just like the, the world keeps changing and we built a lot of things that kind of assume it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, yeah. Yeah, I guess we're both just kind of passionate about life on Earth and what a privilege it is to be part of it and what does it take to, um, to help other people enjoy that privilege in responsible ways. Oh. I couldn't agree more. I feel like that's what my course is. I, I have it as permaculture and life skills. And it's like, yeah, permaculture is life skills, but there's more life skills than just permaculture, you know what I mean, and it's, I'm just glad to be here, I want to help people understand how to live here ethically, and regain some of that common sense, I mean, because I was, I certainly wasn't born with it, you know, and I was raised with it, um, so whatever I have, I've, you know, made many, many, many mistakes to learn what I've learned, and then I've found people along the way that have been able to give me a leg up here and there. So, uh, you know, and I really want my sons to, to have a really good grasp on all this. And I really think that is context. So you raise in a context where they're demonstrating these older skills, these demonstrating like life place, you know, demonstrating that you have the right livelihood. Uh, and, and what that looks like, you know, in your, and when you live it and what it looks like when you have relationships and uh, based around that. So... I think it's a lot of relearning, and it's a huge opportunity. And I can't wait to read your book so that I can grasp more of, of, of rocket mass heater understanding, and so I can start tinkering and doing my own projects here. And I just really look forward to that, and I really thank you for sharing that information. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, I think it'll be useful. It's, it starts with really basic information and sort of the conversations you have to have in the house for it to be useful. And then we put a lot of sort of the technical information that engineers are going to want if they're working on bigger projects in the appendices. So I think you, you can start from wherever you're at. And I know you guys have, have already cut your teeth on a lot of some of these ideas. But um, I, would, I would also really enjoy another chance to get together with you and your family and do something together. And it might be a kid's workshop and it might be a book promotion event or something like that but um if you have time this year or even next year um i'd like to kind of get that started yeah i would love to do that and i know that my family would love to do that so let's plan on that some in time in the next year or two let's let's only plan on doing that i want to uh i want to come up north i haven't been up to oregon in years and i haven't been to portland in about I would say almost 10 years. So I haven't even gone up, or no, you know what? 
I haven't gone to um, Seattle, I mean, in, in like almost 10 years. So I haven't even gone up that way in forever. And I know what happens because I've driven up there. So the process has been made clear to me. And if people don't know, I've just got to let you know. When you cross the border on your way up, the air changes because the trees, right? There's so many trees up there. And you can see as you're leaving the, the drier states and you're going up towards... And I know you're in a dry pocket, but you're still breathing different air. Uh, you guys are just at a totally different... It's absolutely incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And I want to get up there and taste that clean air and, uh, and visit all the people up there. Yeah, yeah. We will be in Portland in early June. Oh, wow. That's almost like a halfway point and, for me. And in Albany. Albany, Oregon, for that Mother Earth News Fair. Okay. So you are flexible with your timing with, with uh, since I, you homeschool, right? Yes. What, yeah. what so month is it? If you're flexible, that might be a good time to, to have a family trip and be able to see some of those big sort of festival things and, uh, you know, maybe maybe go just spend a day at the beach together or something. Yeah, yeah, my wife would like that. Uh, once I finish this book, I keep telling her, once I finish the book, I'll have more time. <laughs> conversation about that. I've been, I've been hoping that that's true for like the last, at least the last two and a half years. Yeah, you know, I say I wrote the book, I took time off, and now I wrote like a much, much, much bigger book, and holy cow, it is eating my life. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I would, I would, I would love to collaborate on some level of book projects together too at some point, so if you, um, if you want, like, a reader or something at some point in your process, let me know about that, too. Absolutely. I love it. Thank you so much, Erica. And I look forward to seeing you in the next year or so. And hopefully we can meet up at that Mother Earth News Fair. Hopefully it's not in my September block of craziness because I'm, I'm, I'm helping out with the Heirloom Expo, which I'm super excited about. It's going to be kids-focused this year. And then cool. right afterwards, I'm going to the permaculture convergence, the North American permaculture convergence. So it's like this huge block of time uh, where I'm super busy. But we'll be up there. So we're already like halfway to you if you're going to be in Portland at that point. So if it's the week afterwards, maybe we'll just keep driving. Yeah, I've got some flexibility in what we do that, that sort of second half of June. Oh, it's in June. Oh, cool. wow. Okay. Yeah. So June. The, uh, the September block. That's a pretty good option. June get, June yeah, is the right September before block gets busy for us with all the wood heat interest. People people who don't think about heat until it gets cold all call us in September and October. <laughs> yep. It's really better to think about heating as sort of something you do in the uh, growth season where you're stocking your firewood and you're planning your installation when it's nice building weather and it's easy to like cut holes in your walls and roof and not be worried about it. So just something to keep in mind for your listeners who might be thinking about when to think about projects. Oh yeah. Earlier is better. <laughs> yeah, planning is key. Alright, yeah. Erica. Yeah. Well, have a wonderful day and we'll talk to you soon and I can't wait for your book. You too. Thanks so much for, for having the conversation and, and um uh, I just, I would, 
thanks for having just a wonderful family that's really fun to watch all the things that you do. Oh, thank you so much, Erica. And I can't wait to, um, uh, have you, do you have any update on the, uh, the Paul Wheaton video series? Because that, I want to see you guys' newest thing on that. Yeah, um, Paul, as you probably know, Paul got hit with a health crisis, um, this, you know, kind of midwinter. Um, and so the, I know that the videos are still being edited. The, the editor who is, has done most of the work only got the job like a month before the, the original deadline because the original video editors were not able to work on the project. So yeah, it's, the project is delayed, but there is, has been substantial progress so far. And, um, as, you know, as far as I know, they're, they're still working on getting it out, but I've, I've been kind of taken up with our book yeah, as well. Yeah, I imagine. I just um, was thinking about yeah, that's the next, on my, the next that's thing. on my list this week to check back in with Paul and just see if there's, there's more I can do to help move that along. Cause yeah. I know. I know a lot of the people that are interested in our book are also interested in seeing some of those, you know, they got some, some pretty good footage from the, some of the innovator stuff the last few years. Um, that, that's a real, it's just really interesting for people that want to stay current with it and actually, you know, see some of the physical artifacts that people are talking about. It's, it's a real different to see it than to um, just be trying to work from a table of dimensions. Especially when it's a room full of uh, people who have been working on this issue for you know years or even decades. Oh man, it's so overwhelming being in that context. Like there are six conversations going on at any given time, either between people or between a person and an object, that you really want to just kind of hang out and be a fly on the wall. And if you've committed to doing ridiculously ambitious projects in the same time frame, and you kind of have to focus on those to make them happen. Um, it's um, it definitely can make your brain hurt. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's just that, such an amazing context. That is so cool. Well, I can't wait to watch that too. I can't wait to read your book. It's just so exciting. I feel like there's so much positive and hope-filled things happening, and I think it's just like as we said before. You know, the complexity, understanding the the, the realities, the dangers, the limitations, and the po the possible you know limitless of, of all these things at the same time, and accepting them and moving forward. Well, thank you so yeah. much, and I I can't wait to meet up with you hopefully in June. Look forward to it. Thank you. All right, Erica. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. So that was a total treat for me. I love talking to Erica. And the things that she discusses, I mean, man, you know, I should reveal that after this interview, we went on talking for another two hours. <laughs> Just off the record, you know, catching up on family and whatnot. But it, it is really a treat to be able to catch up with her. And hopefully I'll be able to go up north and do something with her and Ernie in the next year with my family. So thank you so much for tuning in to Permaculture Tonight. And I hope you guys have an amazing week. And I hope that this spring that you're really prepared and you go real big in the garden, and you have a wonderful, wonderful season. Have a great week from Permaculture Tonight.